Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week we're going to be talking to Kenneth Christensen, who's been a key part of the Danish scene for well over a decade now. His label Echo Chord is one of Dub Techno's best love imprints and is currently celebrating 15 years in operation. He was also a founder of the Copenhagen club Culture Box, which quickly became known as one of the city's finest. On top of that, he spent much of his time working in record stores. And it all adds up to an unusually broad perspective on underground dance music, spanning label and club management, distribution and music production. Matt Unicomb heard about all of this and more when Kenneth visited our Berlin office a couple of months back. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Kenneth Christensen is up next. Didn't you come to Berlin, Kenneth? It's just a quick trip today, one day. Today is not normal. Normally I'm always going here in the weekends and I've been going to Berlin over the last 18 years now. No more, actually. So 25 years. Since the night all. Yeah, 92 was the first time I was in Berlin. So yeah, it's actually 25 years ago. I was here the first time and I remember it very much because it was my first time and I went to the old Tresor Club, the old Ewerk Club and we were like a lot of ravers going in a bus from Denmark to Berlin to go to Love Parade, of course. So that was the first time. And then we have been going here like a lot, like every year for sure. And then I started to, to DJ here in 1999. And then I would say, especially over the last five years, it's, it's maybe four or five times a year at least. So you are like an original techno tourist from the, if you've been doing it since 92. I, I don't really feel like a tourist anymore because every time I go now it's because I'm DJing somewhere and now it's Tresor I play every time. And yeah, it's, it's work it's, now. Uh, it's, so it's kind of work, but yeah, of course, the same time. When you're in Berlin, you always feel a little bit like a raver tourist. It's nice. So what kind of people would organize these bus trips? Would it just be like the clubbers or was there a company or i mean it, it's not there anymore in the beginning of the 90s it was always warehouse parties in copenhagen we were a lot of young people together who, who just organized it together and went away so i've heard they used to do it in you know dorian paik this german guy he was also telling me uh they used to do it within Germany. Like there would be some bus organized to go to some rave or party. Yeah, at that time. they would leave at like 8 a.m. or whatever the exactly. next day. At, at that time, you, you, you couldn't take the flight. It was way too expensive. So, and, and from Copenhagen to Berlin is still only like six hours or something, you know. You just have to take the ferry boat, which is also funny when you are in a party mood, you know, with a lot of ravers. We should bring it back. Imagine that, just a bus drops people off from exactly. like it's, it's funny, in front actually. of the Bergheim yeah. door. It's funny, actually. <laughs> Nobody would get in, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, pay the bus ticket, but entrance isn't guaranteed. You just have to wait outside, wait around for like 12 hours. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I've been a lot in Berlin and I have a lot of friends here over many, many years. So I always love to, to go here. Did you ever consider moving here? Yes, I did, actually. It's like 13 years ago. 
been working in record shops in Copenhagen for many years and also did uh, warehouse parties, illegal parties in clubs. And I decided to stop working in record shops because I wanted to try to do something else and I wanted to do open a, a club, like a steady club. And I have some friends in Berlin who really tried to, to get me actually to, to do something here uh, because at that time there was not really like a in-between club for like 300 people. But I decided in the end to stay in Copenhagen and try to do something in Copenhagen and, and not be one out of a million DJ and one out of a million record label. And so I'm actually happy now after all these years that I stayed. Yeah, because it means the scene in Copenhagen. It means you're contributing to that scene. Exactly. Instead of just, yeah, moving somewhere else. Exactly. That was the, the right choice to do. So Culture Box started in what year? It was 2006, beginning of 2006. Yeah, because you just had the 10 year. Yeah, last. it's it's tw- yeah, it's we celebrated 12 years of Culture Box in January, so yeah, around that time. But uh, I actually just stopped there to work there. Really? So yeah. Man, so this so is an exclusive. That's my next step. You know, I I will now focus again to do more music in the studio with my partner Risovi and. Focus more on my labels and my DJ gigs, my showcases, and maybe do some events somewhere in Copenhagen, but we will see about that. So what led you to give up working at Culture Box? It was actually uh, a decision I made last year that I wanted to... uh, I I had the opportunity to get out of it, sell my shares, because there were some people who wanted to get in and also invest some money in the club to, to improve the club at the same time. And I thought, okay, this is my my chance to move out of it and and now it's i'll be there a few months more and then that's it so how does it feel it Do you, are you very looking forward to the <laughs> it, future it, it, it still feels very strange because it's somebody something that you build up yourself together with my partner so it will always be strange but sometimes i also think it's you have to move on and, and try something else it's so many years and so much responsibility and yeah, it's been a lot of work. I think it was a nice time and you got a lot of contacts and meeting a lot of people, presenting a lot of music in, in small Copenhagen that would not have been there. So when you look back, of course, it's uh, it's nice. So if you're running a club, what does your week look like? Like how many hours? Is it more or less like all day, every day you're doing work-related things? It can change things? a lot because the one thing is that you have to be on like 24-7 because when you are in control of all the bookings and you fly in maybe five or six artists every weekend and you deal with riders and hotels and flights and cancelling flights and all this, then you have to be ready for anything all the time. So it's it's a lot of work in the office more than you can imagine, I think, because a lot of people say, okay, what are you doing in the daytime then, you know? And I mean, running a club with, with 30 people working there and flying people in all the time and, and, and everything. It's uh, Of course, we were a lot of people around it, especially in the last years. But still, it's, uh, it's a lot of responsibility. And, and um, that, that was one of the reasons that I had to try to get a little bit away from that, make a little distance. Was it stopping you from doing other things? Like if you say there was a lot of responsibility, like were you thinking like, oh, I'd rather not be figuring out where this DJ should stay. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially the last year, I think it was, you get really stressful in small things because you look at all these crazy writers and all this, you have to deal with so many things. And also, it can be difficult to run an underground club in Copenhagen. Copenhagen is a very small city and the scene is not that big. So we had our ups and downs and every time you have these downs, you always think, okay, maybe we should try to do something else because maybe it's not really worth it because people don't understand it anyway. So, but it was more like the last year. I said to myself that, uh, yeah, it's maybe a good idea to to do something. So, when you talk about ups and downs, what's a down? Like people just don't come to the a party. A down could yeah. be like if you if you lose use like for example six months trying to book this act that you really like yourself and that and you know this act is really popular everywhere else and you and you bring him or her to Copenhagen or group or whatever to Copenhagen and then in the end you have maybe 80 people showing up you know then you can be a little stressful about it and think what the fuck you know it's like it's crazy you know if of course it's the time is getting better and better now we have more and more people coming to the club regularly and all this so but when you have these periods when you don't even know if you have money enough to to make coins in the banks to, to for the club then it's it's not funny anymore <laughs> and when you started the club was it a struggle at the beginning or was it kind of a hit straight away 
it was a hit straight away because when we opened it was I was opening the club with a guy called Loka and, and when we opened the club there was really nothing in Copenhagen at that time. There was very few big parties maybe once every third month or something. So we needed a place for electronic underground music every weekend. So that was the main reason because we were so much into the music and we needed to, to do something. So of course in the beginning it was huge success and, and then slowly it went a little bit down again, got into a normal thing and you find out okay it's difficult and it's very expensive to do this project and then it gets suddenly better again and yeah it's been uh, up and down i guess it's this uncertainty that could get difficult after a while it's like as you say you book someone that you think will be a success yeah you, you can just get really tired <laughs> so has it become more complicated to book DJs when you talk about these crazy riders? I mean, it's it depends who you want to book, but I think these days it is difficult. And I also I just read an article on RA here the other day that you were writing about the, the, the problems for, for promoters and clubs, actually, that especially this period we have now, it's more about, about hype about the artists instead of the music, which is sad, I think. So you see the same 20, 25 artists playing everywhere, in the big festivals and in the bigger clubs, and they get a huge amount of money. And if you want to present something that is like in between, maybe a little bit like what I am or my artist, it is not that easy at the moment, because I think this generation we have now is not that curious. They just want to see the same artist, the really big hyped artist. And at the moment you have like a festival. You don't have a festival season anymore. You have festival every day almost, all year now, somewhere, you know, and people are traveling more also. It's so easy to travel now. So it's not that easy. So when do you think this shift started to happen? Because you would have had a front row seat to it all. It's it's not that long ago, maybe a year ago, something like this. I think it started to be more complicated and more difficult. Suddenly you, the artists don't only have like an agent anymore, they also have a management or whatever, you know. You have to deal with a lot of people when you send an email, there's maybe 10 people there, CC, you know, it's not like one or two. That's what I think, there's so many like, it's somehow become weirdly professional mm. in an way that isn't needed it can be difficult for sure how was it in the 90s then in copenhagen i guess everyone knows a lot about sweden and svek and this icelandic dub techno thing mm -hmm. so what was happening in the rest of scandinavia in that time i moved to copenhagen like in 1996 i'm from the countryside where we're south oh really but i started to go out in copenhagen like in 1991 when when the big warehouse rave started to not not every month but maybe every second month there was something special going on where everybody was going and then slowly we had some clubs or venues that tried to do some more electronic music we had a place called vega and uh, yeah some other Clubs. I started to play myself in Copenhagen in 1996 in a warehouse kind of place. But the scene was not that big. We had some really nice record shops from the beginning, but uh, it's not been that easy to make underground music there or parties there. Because kids are into other music? Yeah, also it's it's maybe not... We ha I think we had a long period where it's not that easy just to, to open up a warehouse and do a party. You know, there are many, many rules with the f fire departments and all these kind of things. So unless you want to take a big risk, you know, and, and rent in everything and like what we did many times, then you don't know if the police can come anytime and close it down. So you really have to have the nerves also to do it. So yeah, it's... it's uh, It's a big work. It was a big work to, to, to do something. Is there a lot of regulation when it comes to opening a club as well? Oh my God, yes. Yeah, because I can imagine it. Too so much. Too much. But in a way, of, of course, I also understand you have these kind of... You have to, to be sure that the, the guests you have are 100% safe. That's the most important thing, of course. Yeah, this makes sense. So what kind of things, like, if you're running a club in Copenhagen was. or Denmark... Oh yeah, if you were running a club... If you're dealing with the government, what do they want to check? They want to check the fire safety, of course. It's mostly about fire safety, yeah. About how many people can you have in the club at the same time. Uh, stuff like this. The cleaning in the fridges has to be checked. Uh, if you sell, like, cocktails and using fruits and stuff, there are other kind of rules. Then you are suddenly into, like, a, some kind of kitchen rule that you have to do this and this. And you have to make these checklists on everything when you close down the bar or open a bar and stuff like that. Checking that things are clean. Yeah, for example. And there are no rats running around. <laughs> That's not going to work in company. <laughs> <laughs> also, the employees you are hired, that it's legally hired that they have a Danish CPR number and stuff like that. There are many things. Like a tax number? Yeah. Yes, tax number. Oh, I see. Yeah. 
but that's in general that's not only in clubs that's for everybody you know so and has it become more strict over time like in 2006 is it all no i don't think so it's it's i think it's almost a, almost the same you say there are 30 people working now there are like four people in the office like almost every day and then we have all these people in the club when it's open like bartenders runners uh, security guys uh, stuff like that yeah because this is also this is always a big responsibility it's like not only dj fees but it's, it it's, costs a lot to open yep, for one night yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, I can see how and it a would big be. rent in Copenhagen. It's very expensive to to rent anything or buy anything. It's really it's not like Berlin. So how did you find this space? Well, that's a long story. I was uh, looking. We were looking for spaces for a long time, and we needed to find a place that was not too far away from the center, but also we wanted to be close enough to the center so that people can still walk or, or take their bicycle to the club. And in the end, finally, we found this. It was used to something else. I think it was like a wine cigar club or something. When we, when we, but it was empty some years when we found it. And it all has to be totally rebuilt and everything. But we could see the potential in the in the place. And we had the two floors, and we could do a wardrobe, and we could do this and this. And uh, then, uh, yeah, we took it and started from the from scratch. So, how long did it take to renovate? I think it took half a year or something. That's the thing, when there's so much money on the line and time, it's a pretty serious decision mm. to want to open something it's, it's, somewhere it's, like it's, that. Yeah, it was a little bit more serious than I thought. Expensive hobby. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot more going on than most people realize when they go to a club. Like yep. There's so much There's a lot of behind things behind the scenes. that you don't see. So a lot of work during the week that you don't see. So. Yeah. So what are you going to do during the week now? <laughs> I will have a little break, I think. Use some more time for my kids also when I have my kids every second week. Go to the, more to the studio again with uh, Dennis Rissoe. We have this project called Pattern Repeat together. And, and we now finally have a time again to maybe go to the studio once a week or two times a week instead of once every six months. <laughs> it's a little better. And you also have a little time now, very soon. So that's the plan. And, and, and focus more also on my, my labels now. I just hired a, a, a PI agent. And I think he was the guy who got in touch with you, so we could do this also. So it 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 all it already works, and that's a new thing for me also to try to maybe invest some money in my labels and see where it goes. I mean, uh, I think it's time mm. to try to take it to another level. So, are you asking producers for tracks usually, or is most of what you get sent? Mostly it is what I get sent. Times can really change. Sometimes nothing can really happen for some months and then suddenly I get so much sent, you know. And uh, for me, it has mostly for a long period been like a little family that I'm using. I used a lot the same artist, uh, my main artist. And then suddenly something comes up. I hear about some somebody from another label or from another artist or I'm following somebody for a certain time and then I got these tracks and I'm like, okay, yeah, cool. Right now, there's a lot going on. I mean, it's crazy. So it's uh, it's really it seems like a good year. That's the thing with this dubby kind of music. It's always just stayed uh, strong somehow. Yeah, I think so. I think it was it was disappearing a little bit. I would say maybe six, seven years ago, and then as suddenly, people started getting into this harder sound, maybe. Yeah, and then suddenly, but but it always comes back in a way because uh, if if you if people are going to the more housey scene or the banging techno scene. Sometimes they end somewhere again in the, in the more deeper deeper stuff uh, that I like also. So I think it will always be here. So how did you get into this deeper stuff? You can't really play that at a warehouse. <laughs> you can actually oh, really? if you have a really good sound system. Maybe yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, no, but it was it was from Berlin actually when when I. Uh, it was like, I mean, everybody's maybe saying this, but it was the old Chain Reaction basic channel stuff and the old Dean label uh, f- and when Stefan Becker did the pole stuff and also listened to a lot of dub and reggae stuff earlier. But also, I mean, I'm not only playing dub techno, I also play techno in-house, uh, but I'm more focused about this kind of dubby thing somehow in my labels and yeah, I, I've always liked that. So what did you like about it? Was it this hypnotic thing or was it like gave you a nice like positive feeling? Like, what is it about these dub techno lovers? Because I also have some friends who are obsessed with this sound. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I just like the, the, the sound in it. I mean, the, the deep sound and the, the bass and the, the whole thing. I think it's, it's beautiful. Were you already into techno when Basic Channel and Maurizio yes, came was, out? Yeah. can't imagine what it would be like to hear this stuff for the first time. 
it was Usually Maurizio or something. Yeah. It's like it's it's always amazing when you have these times when you maybe see a new genre somehow, and it it's not really happening that that much anymore because every time you hear something that is nice, it's maybe you heard it before somehow. But yeah, for example, the basic channel and or when Paul did his first releases or Burial for me was also something really new and fresh. James Blake did some stuff and like like when you really feel okay, that's really something new here. That's that's really interesting. I think that's amazing. Yeah, it doesn't happen so often anymore. Nope. <laughs> well, for me, every time I hear something, whoa, this sounds so fresh. This sounds so good. It's just someone remaking 90s stuff mm, yeah. which can be cool or well, maybe it's, it's a repress from 1992 <laughs> but you didn't know it <laughs> yeah exactly yeah would you buy records in Berlin when you would visit I just did I just went oh, to I mean uh, like when you would come for your techno trips yeah yeah would you go yeah yeah we visit would, the record shop yeah for sure we also bought records from, from the beginning at that time I was actually working in a record shop from 89 to 91 in the countryside where I grew up like house and techno Yes, or we had the first uh, Warp releases, the first Arnest releases. Uh, we also saw like Dippets Mode and more like uh, New Wave stuff and pop stuff, like Pitcher Boys, whatever. But we had these uh, new underground stuff in a, in, a, in a small city for 25,000 people. So how was it in 1989? If you were like some 40-year-old guy or girl, did you still have to be a real music lover to buy vinyl? Would the average person go and buy a record? Or had CDs already... Uh, taken over it, the CD was taken over slowly but still you could get vinyl within all genres and but lots of people would buy it like yeah, uh, you didn't have to be some music nerd no it was later that the CD took a lot more over I see if I remember right did this affect the record shop you were working in in the countryside yeah you could see that we got more and more CDs uh, we had to sell as well also in the in the last one I worked in in Copenhagen we sold a lot of for example uh, compilations like cd compilations for like ambient or downbeat stuff or whatever but that was the way to have the vinyls to to afford to have a big back stuff of vinyl all the time selling the compilations then we had a good advance on these but you know not so much on vinyl so it was about finding the balance all the time because you know now people are so uh yeah i'm a vinyl lover i love vinyl etc i don't know i always find it interesting if there's someone that's been a vinyl guy or girl since the very beginning because now if you're if you're playing vinyl it seems like you're of course you love it but it's a bit more of a statement but i find it so interesting when there was someone who was around in the early 90s cds came out they seemed so new and convenient but they still chose vinyl you know i'm the right guy to talk about this because i've i still only play vinyl and i always did and i think cds are so ugly yeah so what happened if you're like some if you're a music guy girl and then cds arrived what did you think were you like what is this crap i didn't really look at it i mean i mean on my echo chord label i also did uh, cd releases on on the albums in a way of course I, I i think i have to and i think also of course it's nice to have but for me it's the vinyl thing to to do i mean if i could not sell vinyl i would not have a record label for me then it's not a record label if there's no records i mean then why have a record label i don't understand did lots of your friends switch to... Well, I guess vinyl stayed with DJing until the end of the 90s. When did digital start to take over? What I, what I saw was that people started to, to, to play the CDs, like home-burned CD stuff for a long period. And then after the digital got more and more in, they, they used uh, USB sticks, for example, over the last years. I see. But still, I see like new generation now that also what you just said that that up just playing vinyl and, and they love it as well so for me it's just nice to see this generation you, you look at yourself like 25 20 years ago or something you know it's i think it's nice yeah there's still lots of people using vinyl yeah it's beautiful yeah i don't know what i would have done because like for me i'm 28 my first contact with music was through cds mm-hmm. you know so for me to then go and use vinyl it's a bit more like it's a bit more of a sentimental thing maybe my first thing was cassette you know the cassettes like, yeah uh, when I was like 12, 13 or something. So you've always had analog. <laughs> Real analog guy. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you decide to move to Copenhagen then in 1996? How old were you? I was 23. Uh-huh. And it was a natural thing to do. You you moved to the biggest city in your country and I wanted to work with uh, electronic music and that was the only place in Denmark. And I had a chance to move or, or to work in a record shop there. So I started that. So took it from there. what was the record shop called? It was called Street Dance Records, a really ugly name. But it was the first record shop in Denmark that was 
totally concentrating about uh, underground electronic music. They also had hip hop and stuff, but but really cool uh, record shop in the beginning. I was there exactly three years when it turned into a more commercial dance music stuff, selling PlayStation stuff, and I was like games and stuff, and I was like, okay, I have to to try something else. So I decided to try to open my own record shop with a good friend called Morton. At that time, there was too much competition. So after one year, we found out that this these records we wanted to sell was too nerdy for for Copenhagen, and it was not it was not possible. And then I got the opportunity to work in another record shop, and I did that for four years before I moved on with the club thing. So what records were you selling when you had your own? We wanted to do very much like a hard rock shop in Copenhagen, like a lot of Berlin stuff and a lot of Detroit stuff mixed, and it was difficult. But we tried. If it lasted for one year, when did you figure out that it wasn't going to be a long-term thing? I think after half a year, then you find out that it's it's not possible to, to earn anything or to, to survive. It was... Uh, too expensive to I mean if you at that time at least if you if you buy in 10 records you just sell nine of them to break even you know there was no advance on the record so then it's difficult if you sell three and you have seven then you are actually fucked yeah. <laughs> unless you have a lot of money to put in to make a very big backstock and you can just take it easy or sell something else in the shop. That that's what you also see a lot. If people opening a record shop, for example, now these days you you maybe have a hairdresser next door. You have a coffee shop also there, or selling books or whatever. Clothes I think or it's, something. Yeah, it's the way to do it if you want to. Unless you are like a really stable shop that has been here for many many years. It would be pretty hard to run a record store. I can imagine. What was the one that you worked in after you closed yours? And what was yours called? Mine was called Science Fiction. Yeah, and cool. we named it after a track by Daniel Bell on our old Tresor compilation. And after that, I, I moved to a record shop called Loud Music, and it's been existing for many years, and it was uh, some really good friends working there already. Dennis, actually, who is my partner now in Pattern Repeat, Riso, he was actually also working there. So he started his own label also when I went there and saw my label, and yeah, we talked about everything, and then we started slowly to have these things together. So something really good came out of it, and I... Still remember the good times there. Yeah. So how many years in total did you say you worked at record stores? It must be yeah, ten, almost ten years. Wow. There's a general like uh, opinion. <laughs> if you're working in a record shop, people are mean. Like you're a grumpy record store guy. Why do you think that is? Why does that stereotype they, they exist? It can be. It's not be. always. Not always. Like there's obviously mm, lots of really nice people. But I think you can see that in all kinds of shops, actually. If you have been doing this for so many years, yes, and you have some young people coming in, then you know that you know more than they do, so they should not say anything about anything, you know. It's maybe a little bit like that, you know. Um, but for example, the record shop we had in Copenhagen, the last one, it was very important for me to be really, really polite and to really, really help people and really trying to help them to find the right records and... Because, I mean, it's a jungle. It's uh, If you don't know anything, you have to to keep the customers. So what can a customer do to annoy a record store clerk? Like, what's the what's a bad customer? I don't really see any bad customers. I think if people are coming to a record shop, it's because they're curious about this music you're selling. And then uh, I think already when they step in, it's uh, unless they do something violent or anything, then I think it's... Uh, I cannot see why not to treat them right. I mean... Yeah, exactly. So... In London, I've had some, like rude workers I think I'm pretty friendly when I go to a record shop and it's just funny when that isn't reflected back at you but uh the thing I was thinking is like I've also worked in shops before like before I started working here while I was at university in Australia customers can be pretty rude not saying please and thank you just rude so I was thinking maybe a record shop is one of the air is one of the jobs where you can like where you don't have to be so where customer service isn't so like obsessed over yeah maybe people more feel like home there if, also if they go there a lot they feel like, like the home in the kitchen or anything they just chill out and maybe are not so busy using a lot of money sometimes I don't know yeah who else from the Danish scene have you worked with in a record store a lot of people a lot of people but I don't think anybody that you would know for ah, example more local guys yeah local guys doing some local stuff hmm. were you making music in this time no, I was not making music before we started Pattern Repeat, me and uh, Dennis, um, which is, what is that, five years ago or something, maybe? <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, so you had the label before you started making tunes? Echo Court is 15 years ago yeah. now. So, so you had the label before, way before yeah, you started yeah, way making before. tracks? I way didn't realize before. that. I thought way you were making before. tracks this whole time. No, 
it was only because uh, Dennis and I had this idea that we wanted to try to make something, some music in another direction that that could fit to our to my label Echocord or to his label Baum, a little bit more techno in a way, this more metallic kind of techno sound, and and he got this super cool studio a little bit north of from Copenhagen. Well, at the beginning it was actually in Sender, but now he moved north. Crazy, crazy studio and really amazing. Yeah, I, I went to his place and we just tried to to do some stuff and very fast we had the same kind of idea about which direction to go. Then we we just thought, okay, shall we send it to someone or should we maybe just try to to make a new project uh, project together? And I called Compact again, saying, hey, uh, we have this project. Uh, yeah, I'm not buying uh, records this time. I've got a new uh, <laughs> selling records. So they said, yeah, of course, Kenneth, we are ready for you. So it was super cool and easy. So is Compact distributing Echocord? They have been distributing from the very beginning and they've been a very big help for me. I've known the guy Michael, Michael Meyer and Wolfgang before because I've been working in record shops. So I started to deal with Compact, with the distribution, even when I started from the beginning. So we already knew each other. So when I sent it the tracks, they were they were really positive with the first releases with Michael Metal. I got a go from them and said, okay, let's let's do it. Yeah, that's the thing. When you find a good distributor, I guess it's really encouraging because it gives you... It's so important. Know, it's like a safety... Also, when you know the people and it's it's, it's all about music. It's all about music. It's so, so important. Mm. Her chord is 15. That's 2001 or two. It was actually... Uh, I think it was end of 2001. I, I decided to do it and the first release came beginning of 2002. So it's 15 years ago, yeah. So how many records would you press in 2002? If you don't mind me asking. I think it was 250 or something. Okay, so it's not like thousands. No, no, no. Absolutely not. Uh-huh. And it still is not. <laughs> yeah. Was vinyls going down at that point? In 2001, was it still like... No, I think it was not going down. In that, I think it was later. They had a little down going when, when it really got famous to download tracks and when you saw Beatport and all this coming up and it got easier to travel with a USB stick somebody found out. Maybe they're old, I don't know. But um, then it went a little bit down, and then suddenly you see this new generation again and, and uh, the popularity of pressing vinyl, all kinds of music. You see jazz music or whatever, pop music. It's uh, I think it was last year, the, the biggest vinyl sale for, what, 20 years? Yeah, that's what they say. That, that's crazy. I mean, it's it's really, really nice to see. Because for me, it's a, to make the vinyl is, is a process. It's like put a lot of energy in it. You get somebody to master your tracks. You have somebody to do your artwork, or you do it yourself maybe. And it's a, it's a, you have to think a lot about how it should look like. It's it's a, it's like a real product instead of just putting up a track which is not even mastered on somewhere. Where are you getting the records mastered? It's mastered in uh, I think it's just outside of Cologne. It's uh, it's one of the guys from the Compact family doing it. It's always been around Compact. So so have you visited visited Cologne? Well, yeah, many a times. Lot? Yes, many times. I play there like at least once a year for many years and also went there a lot just to see the the factory, I say, the big place down there, <laughs> see all the guys, the offices and studios. How often are you playing in Copenhagen? It's not that much um, because the last, especially the last three years, I've been really busy uh, playing somewhere else in Europe, um, also America. So when, uh, when, when, I, when I had a weekend home, Without my kids, which uh, it's every second weekend, I try to focus on something else. I've been a lot to the club, of course, but but uh, I just played there like once a month for, for, for a period. And then long, maybe a year ago, two years ago, I also played like maybe five, six times a year. But playing somewhere else in Copenhagen is not very often, maybe once a year. Yeah, I see. And are there lots of people putting on parties outside Culture Box? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of smaller places. Like there's, we have this uh, meat district area uh, with a lot of bars and smaller kind of clubs in between things. Of course, there's a few clubs also with electronic music, um, and there's always some pop-up parties somewhere. So there's a lot of things going on actually. Does it seem like Copenhagen is especially busy now? For dance music, like busier than it was <clears throat> when it's, you started. It's busier now than, than, yeah, definitely. Because I, I think we just got a gen, the generation that got more energy for this. Also, we have a new record shop, record shops, and new labels popping up, and uh, we have some local DJs that are playing also around Europe. Not only me and Martinez or Trenemüller, who else is popular. We have some really good upcoming young people now that are really 
traveling also and, and doing a career about it. So it's it's really nice to see. I guess it would be pretty hard to do music full time in Copenhagen. Yeah, <laughs> especially yeah. this kind of music. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out how like how much you need to play to live off music in Copenhagen. Like, if you're some 25 year old living in a share apartment, how many euros do you think a apartment would be? It, it really depends by where you live. If you live in the center, or if you live like let's say out in the suburb somewhere, it it it, it can change a lot. If you want to live in the center, it's maybe uh, at least maybe a thousand euro for a room if you sh- if you share an apartment if you want a small apartment maybe it's two thousand three thousand euro yeah but then you can go maybe far out and you maybe you pay the half or something I see but still there's a lot of money yeah lot of money. so you can see why so many people want to move to Berlin I totally understand it I totally understand it yeah. definitely I mean if I just talked to my agent not too long ago and we talked about it. she just moved here. And I mean, if if I was 25 years today and had no kids, and uh, you know, then I've I wanted to do this kind of career with this music, I would definitely also live yeah, w- here. Was it an option, like as you say, if you were like a 25 year old into this music in the 90s, was it common to go and move to another city not to really. pursue your no, you know really. dream? Not really. It's it's because everybody is the, the whole world is getting more easy to 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 move around. People are traveling all the time. It's getting much cheaper, and also if you want to go home to Copenhagen, yeah, it takes forty-five minutes, and it costs like maybe I, I paid I think hundred euro a day for a return flight to London. Now it's like what fifty euro or something. So it's uh, it's another another time, you know. Yeah, it's not such a huge uh, daunting task to move to another yeah, city. You don't think so much about it anymore. If you if you see some oh that's a nice festival somewhere, okay, you just you go. It's funny, like, I just wonder if, uh, because Berlin has become so huge, if that affected other scenes, because so many young people into this music move to Berlin to do their parties and try and become a DJ, mm. that means they're not in their own home city putting on events. So it just drains the pe- like other cities of enthusiastic people. I think so. People can see what you can do somewhere else I mean also you are sitting here in this office doing RA in Berlin and yeah I'm I don't, not in Sydney I, I, don't, I don't think you're from Berlin right <laughs> so I mean that's a good example no, also that, that people are doing what they want to do and they want to they live where they want to live they have energy and they can see everybody else is trying to do something so you see the same in I think also especially Amsterdam is it's amazing what is going on there Paris also like and Amsterdam is not a big city it's a very small city and it's uh, there's so many things going on also like music stuff yeah. So what do you think Amsterdam has that other people don't? It's just this music is ingrained in their culture more or it's cheap. I, I guess because it's also it's also not so cheap. I think it's somewhere in between Berlin and, and Copenhagen, but I also think it's the city in itself. It's so beautiful. And also maybe it's because it's not that bigger. That Some people also really like that. They, they can, you know, overview it very fast if they go there like a tourist and want to see some stuff. It's uh, you can You can go to the boat and to the canals and uh, if you like to smoke the big cigarettes you can do that I mean it's a it's a I, I love I think it's a very nice city yeah so how was the party at Shelter it was fantastic because it's always good to play in Amsterdam yeah I did people a, are so into it Eco Court 15 year Eco Court show that was great and so where else will the 15 year parties be oh we already done a lot uh, we did one in Tokyo um, and we did of course Tresor Berlin. Oh yeah, I of course. Play. Yeah, we did a bit. It was recently, one. not that long ago. Actually, I come back and play here first of April again, very soon. Uh, but yeah, in, a, in Cologne, in Gewölbe, uh, yeah, many clubs all over Europe. And how have they been? They've all been very good, all good. And it's for me, it's always nice. One thing is to go and play as a DJ, but when you could do a showcase for your label, it's 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 always something special. You meet. Your artists from somewhere else in the world, and and you have this thing together, and you can build up something special. People are coming because of the label, also not only because of maybe a bigger DJ. Then you are going to warm up to anything. It's it's a, you know, I really like the the whole thing about doing these showcases. So. And then I guess the music throughout the night is more likely to match together. Exactly, you can control the music in the whole night instead of having maybe sometimes some young DJs before and playing some playing some banging stuff. So does this happen pretty often? It happens, yeah. Because it seems uh, like it's such a cliche that doesn't yeah. really happen, but, but I've it, asked so many DJs, and they're like, yeah, "Yeah, man, it happens." Yeah, yeah, it happens. But yeah, we did Concrete also in Paris, and we did uh, yeah many good places. So um, we did Lyon also it was really really great. So yeah, I'm really happy, and we will do a lot of 
showcases also the next period. Is it like a competition to see who's playing the deepest tracks at an echo chord no. level? <laughs> but it also really depends where you play. Is it a is it a club for three hundred people or is it a club for one thousand people? Uh, you know, it's it it can change a lot. It's like if you're a dub techno guy, you play back to back with someone. It's not who can play the biggest <laughs> banger. It's like who can play the no. deepest. <laughs> normally, normally the the big artist on my label is playing a little bit harder than me, like like Lucas or Mike Diner or Dipbeat and stuff. Uh, so normally I do the warm up to them and make sure that uh, it's it's not too crazy before they went off. Yeah, because then you can guarantee that. Uh, yeah, exactly. The warm up is good. Yeah. Sometimes also playing the very end. I did last time in in Tresor in the morning. That was also funny because then you can actually take it down again, and do your deep stuff because then people are ready for it again. So that's also funny. Do you prefer closing or warming up? If I can do a very long warm up set, that's the best thing in the world for me. When I can really play the first record and play maybe three four hours. And I can see uh, when people are coming slowly and, and, and build it up. That's that's my favorite position, that's for sure. So how do you play... Because the warm-up set, everyone knows how it should be, this gentle rising. Like, what is the key? Is it about knowing the different energy levels of the tracks? Exactly. Because some people can do it so perfectly, can't they? Yeah. Like, you listen to a proper warm-up set, and it really is this yeah. smooth yeah. rise. And it's, it's maybe it's the most difficult thing to do as a DJ, because if you just play prime time, you can just really, like play or banging stuff but if you really want to put more and more energy into each track almost you know then it's a yeah it's a journey I guess it really becomes about selection because you yeah, have to know you have like to prepare where... it a lot and to really make sure that you maybe the first hour are still here and then can push it a little bit of course you have your extra records with you if you suddenly can see a totally full dance floor with hands in the air after half an hour you have to maybe do something else but it's, it feels really good when it when it works it's very special. Yeah. It so gives what, me still a lot of energy after all these years. So what's the sign that a warm-up set is going well? Like people are... I guess it's like you can see people are into it, but they're not like... Yeah, when you can see... with the when level you, that you're... Yeah, exactly. When you, you can feel it. I mean, if you stand there and you, you look at people, you can, you can see that... Uh, you can see it, definitely. Feel it. But how can you get good at playing a warm-up? Is it just practice or you teach yourself to think more about the records? I think it's also experience. If you have tried it many times, uh, different places. I mean, it, 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 it's very different if you play at Dimensions Festival or or in a small club in Italy. I mean, it's. But but yeah, you 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 have to know your records right, and and also if if it's an echo chord showcase, always try to play as many echo chord records as as possible because it is a, also a little promotion thing, you know, and people also expect that. So it's about knowing your records and knowing how to mix it and when you have to mix it in and, and also at the same time look at the crowd, do the right thing. Yeah, if you're playing like more peak time stuff, you don't have to mix so delicately maybe. It doesn't matter if there are two synths. It's, it's true, yeah. If, if, you, if you do this warm-up sets, maybe you have a longer period with, with both records up running and, and you, know, you don't cut it like... But it also depends on how you play it. If you play vinyl or you play USB and sync it, uh, some people do that, and then everybody can be a DJ, I think. Yeah, well, the thing I don't like about this USB style, when you see some DJs play, it all basically sounds like one really long track because exactly. the mixes are so, like, yeah. beat match so perfectly. Yeah. yeah. It's not, I, I love when you can hear small mistakes. Yeah. You can actually hear that somebody's working up there. I mean, for me, it's perfect that you can you can hear some something. I mean, it, it gives some energy also, I think. You've been DJing for so long... Like, what mistakes, what can go wrong with one of your sets? Just a wrong selection? You don't know the track so well? Or, I don't know, like, what, what makes you think, like, oh, damn it, I shouldn't have done that? If you can be maybe getting too much into the to the party or to the vibe, that maybe the worst thing could be that your record is running out, you know, for example. I mean, I haven't tried it for many years, but I remember I tried it, and that's absolutely not funny. People are standing, when you're standing with your headphones on, you cannot hear anything, you know, and people are just standing there screaming. Like, oops. Yeah, it's, it's a long time ago I tried it, but, uh, but of course it can happen. I mean, uh, but otherwise, I would say, yeah, it's all fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I also prepare myself a lot. I'm not just taking my record back and and putting in hundred records. I really try to have my sex set almost prepared. Like, of course, I have some extra records in between and see what I can do. But at least I have most of everything ready, especially if it's a place I haven't been before. So, what do you when you're packing records? What are you thinking? Are you thinking like, oh, okay, 
I'm going to pull out this Thor record. I know this mm. goes really good with mm. this Dead Beat. It, it, I mean, if I, if I played in a club in a weekend and I had a set, that a warm-up set that really worked perfectly, let's say a free-out set, and I'm playing in a totally another club the weekend after for the first time, I would say, okay, I could try to actually do the same set there and just bring some new records that just got, or maybe find five old records up there and put them in as well, you know. But sometimes it can also be that I'm okay now. I'm totally tired of this. I just take some a lot of old records and mixing with maybe two new records. So it really depends. And also, if it's a echo chord showcase, I maybe find some really old echo chord records and put in. Yeah. So how often do you get to a club and the vinyl setup isn't? It's optimal? funny because many people ask me that because I also have, of course, all my DJ friends. A lot of them are using the USB stick now, and they're always complaining about the setup is bad and. The needles are broken or whatever, but I maybe I've been lucky. I don't know. Maybe it's because it's really specified in my writer from my agent that this really needs to be ready, like fresh needles and this kind of mixer and this kind of turntables and stuff like this. I actually never tried. Of course, you can try to have a needle that is maybe too, used too much, but then you get a new one. I mean, so maybe I've been lucky. Also in the festivals I've been playing. What's the story with funding and Culture Box? Because I remember... If- Recently, you guys lost funding, or yeah. Going what what is really amazing about living in uh, in Copenhagen or in Denmark in general is that is maybe that it's the same in some countries, but also know many countries that can't do this. Is that it's actually possible to to try to get some control funding to what you do. Uh, it can be all kinds of things. It can be running a theater or a museum, but there are these uh, fundings where you can try to to get some support for for different things. And um, in the beginning, we got some some money. It was called honorarstøtte. It means you get some money, but you can only use it for for artists playing, for for paying the artists, not for running the place in general. And can you pay? Da- is there a rule about who you can pay? Yeah, and how much also? Yeah. And do you pay just Danish DJs, or you also, also you use also, it for other DJs? Yeah, from but abroad? only a small amount you could use for it. So, and after like it was, I think, uh, one year, we were so lucky that we could get another kind of money, which was for also to, to support the to running the, the place in general. And that was taken away from Culture Box like, like last year. So now we are back again to where we were in the beginning, uh, which can be uh, a little difficult because then you don't have this extra money to use for something else. It's mm. totally located to, to these things. So why did they stop the funding? There was another government you know, that wanted to support other things. They decided to have some of the cultural money, for example, in Copenhagen or Aarhus, which is the second biggest city, and move them out to the countryside because the countryside is getting more and more dead in Denmark. People are moving to the big cities or out of Denmark. So they want to try to, to put back some energy in the cities or building up a museum or something else, which is stupid because people will not move back because of that. So then there was less money left for for Copenhagen. Um, which is crazy and, but, you, and so I guess a lot of other cultural businesses in Copenhagen also got their funding cut it was also museums and theatres and everything but it's stupid to do it especially now when, when we have so many more and more tourists coming to Copenhagen Copenhagen is growing like crazy we're building and building apartments a lot new hotels all the time it's all covered with people and then at the same time you know they should instead put more money in the city and make more money. And so were lots of other people protesting, like the museums and yeah, there's been art a lot galleries? Of, a lot of protesting going on. So, But there's nothing to do about it right now. But we were lucky, or Culture Box was lucky, to, to get this other kind of money still, to, 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 to have some money to, to pay the artists, which is also a big expense.